Let's read, first of all, from God's Word. Let's look at the Song of Songs in the Old Testament, and from chapter 2, and two short readings from this chapter. First of all, like read from verses 3 to 4. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my lover among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. He has taken me to the banquet hall, and his banner over me is love. Then we have verses 16 to 17. My lover is mine, and I am his. He browses among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flee. Turn, my lover, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the rugged hills. And we turn now to St. Paul writing to us in Ephesians, in the third chapter, and we come to that great prayer for Ephesian Christians, beginning at verse 14 of chapter 3, and going on to the end of the chapter. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family, in heaven and on earth, derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do more, immeasurably more, than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. May we pray together. Father, now we turn to your holy and wonderful word. We share those parts of your glorious word this morning and we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit you are blessed the hearing and the reading of your word. That Lord, through looking at your word this morning we may have your voice speaking to us and Father, may now bear the words of my lips and the prayers of all of our hearts be acceptable now and always in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Glorify your precious word, we pray now, in the power of your Holy Spirit, for our Lord Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. We're turning now to God's precious word, and especially the words of St. Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 where Paul now turns to that great prayer for the Ephesian Christians. You know, before he even calls them to unity, he has this great prayer for them. And it ends with, they might know the dimensions, the wonder, the full measure of God's love. And he's writing to Christians 
who once have been Gentiles, far away from the kingdom of heaven. But now they become to know the Lord Jesus Christ. But for them, he doesn't want to stop there. He wants them to grow and grow and grow in faith and love and serve God more powerfully all of their lives. And when he writes to them, he's not writing to special people. When he uses the word saints, he means all the people in God, all who are redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wants to write to us because he knows there will be greater opposition. He knows that Satan will try and frustrate their journey. He knows that Satan will try and immobilize them. And therefore the answer must be they live in the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing and feeling and proclaiming all of God's love in Jesus Christ. You know, as God's people, the smallest grain of faith will take us into heaven. But do we want to enter heaven being tugged in on a water-ridden ship? Or do you want to enter heaven powerfully sailing into the harbour by the power of the Holy Spirit? But you know that Satan would always try and frustrate the people of God at every turn, either directly or through his millions he places in various places and, and situations. And Satan would constantly attack our assurance of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. He would try and make God's army be immobilized at square one by attacking our very assurance of salvation. And Paul wants to get those very dear people into really what is the salvation chain. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 and in verse 29 to 30, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Paul wants to get those Ephesian Christians into that salvation chain that they might be changed from glory into glory till in heaven they take their place. And God's word speaks to us just the same way today. God wants us to be changed from glory into glory till in heaven we take our place to go forward in full assurance of faith. In 1520, Martin Luther wrote that great Reformation work called The Freedom of a Christian. That's why I've chosen the reading of the Song of Songs this morning, because that's what Luther alluded to in this great Reformation work. And Luther said this, as God's people, it's like this. It's like a king, a powerful and mighty and loving king. He marries a harlot and she becomes his queen because he loves her. And oh, we sang that last hymn just now, how deep the Father's love for us. And don't the words get to the heart that says that he should send his only son to make a wretch his treasure. And Luther says it's like this. This mighty king, he chooses a harlot to be his queen because he loves her. And then they exchange a marriage vows where they say, all I have is yours, exchange all I have to one another. 
And when the king marries a queen, he pronounces it, she becomes that queen by the marriage act. Now, Luther says to, well, like this as a Christian, the queen is two things. She is a queen by status, but she is still a harlot by nature. And Martin Luther says, it's like that with a Christian. By status, we are justified. But by nature, we are sinners. The the Christian is simultaneously justified and a sinner. But because we exchange vows with the King of Kings, all he has is ours. And in, in the Song of Songs, we have those words, My beloved is mine, and I am his. We give to Jesus all our sin and shame and darkness. He gives to us all his righteousness. And we know we're justified in the sight of the Father because of what Jesus has done for us. No condemnation, now I dread Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head and clothed in righteousness divine, bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Then Luther says, the Christian, Satan will come. He will try and tempt us. He will try and confront us with all our sin and tell us how can we possibly be accepted by God. Until this, Luther says, yes, I know I am a sinner, but what of it? There is one who died for me. His name is Jesus Christ. And where he is, I shall be also. As Richard Sibbs put it, there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in us. Oh, claim the promise of Romans chapter 5. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've obtained access to the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in our hope of the glory of God. But then Luther says, The queen has married the king. He's become a queen. Then she realizes what the king has done for her. And she begins to change. She gives up her harlot ways. She changes her life because of the love she has for the king. Because she realizes the love the king has showered upon us. And so it is with the Lord Jesus Christ. We combat all the accusations of Satan. We proclaim, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own, not because of anything we have done or could ever do, because of all that he did. And we reflect upon his love for us. And that love of God in Jesus Christ must motivate all that we do. That we might measure How great is God's love for us. But before we can measure God's love, as Paul tells us to in Ephesians, we have to do a few preliminary things. First of all, we have to get near. You can't measure anything from a distance. I could try and measure that door now and say it's about two and a half metres. It's probably highly inaccurate. And I have to get near to it to be able to measure. And so we need to get nearer and nearer to God to measure more and more of his great love for us. And secondly, we must prepare ourselves for 
taking all of those measurements. And Paul in his prayer here for Ephesians starts by doing all the preparation for measuring. He says, first of all, these, these words in verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. And as we come to this verse here, oh, the profoundness that we kneel before the Father. Matthew 6 and chapter 6 and verse 9 is, is where Jesus gives the Lord's prayer to his church. And he says, when you pray, pray like this, our Father who is in heaven. You see, we don't merely presume to come to God. We boldly approach the eternal throne. And why? Because God commands us to call him our Father. It's not by presumption, it's by royal command. And John Calvin once said this, We must no longer doubt whether God will receive our prayers or not, seeing we do not come to him with a foolish temerity by presuming upon our own natural reason or self-conceit, but in obedience to this command. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. But also what Paul does here, he says, I kneel before the Father. And perhaps in the Christian church today, we're used to the idea of kneeling in prayer. It's generally become the custom. But in Paul's time and generation, the Jewish people generally stood up to prayer. But on highly exceptional occasions, they knelt down in prayer. King Solomon knelt down at the awe of God at the dedication of the temple. Paul knelt down at the deathbed of Dorcas. Stephen knelt down as he was being, being martyred. And the reason they kneel in this way is because of that sense of earnestness in prayer. We kneel before the Father in deep earnest, from whom his whole family in heaven on earth derives its name. God's people, he is our Father. And then Paul says in verse 16, the next thing, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you. Out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you. John Newton wrote, Dear name the rock on which I build my shield and hiding place, my never failing treasury filled with boundless stores of grace. And we're reminded here as God's people, stop behaving like spiritual paupers. We have all the riches of heaven at our disposal for his grace and truth are such none can ever ask too much. Oh, try and go around a big stately home like, like Chatsworth and you go around there, you go down corridor and corridor, another one opens up. The place seems never ending. How more ever, much more never ending are God's riches towards his people. I pray out of his glorious riches that he might strengthen you with power in your inner being. And we need, before we come to even contemplate and measure God's love, we need to be strengthened. 
We need to be strengthened because we are babes. We need to be strengthened because otherwise the devil will try and target the inner man. In other words, the very centre of all our emotions and all our being. We need to be strengthened because of the greatness that God offers to us. We need to be strengthened because we are meant to grow. Peter writes to Peter 3.18, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasted away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. How we need to be strengthened, receive what God has for us. And the aim is this in verse 17, Paul says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The very saintly Handy Moore once said on this, on this, on this chapter in Ephesians, he comes not as a casual, occasional visitor, but he comes as a permanent member of the household. And you know, so many of God's people, they've fallen away by the wayside because Jesus Christ isn't dwelling in the heart by faith. It's all a difference between knowing Jesus Christ being for us and knowing the Lord Jesus Christ in us. All we might see the tender heart of the Lord Jesus Christ working in our lives, dwelling in our hearts. And there was a Puritan preacher called Thomas Goodwin, and he spent years of what he called a scolding ministry, admonishing his congregation mainly around the Ten Commandments until he was changed by the grace of God. He preached a ministry of grace a ministry of encouragement. And he wrote a famous book called The Heart of Christ in the, in, the, in the Hearts of Man. Dwelling in the heart by faith. That the Lord Jesus Christ is to us not just a casual visitor, but one who is constantly dwelling in all of our hearts. And he says this, See, here's the result of this. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love. Paul wants us to be rooted and established in love. And there are two expressions used here, quite deliberately. The first one is this, rooted. It gives a picture of a mighty tree, doesn't it? And trees aren't knocked down very easy. And why not? Because they have deep roots And the roots go deeper and deeper to support the tree. And so, the more we are rooted in love, the stronger we are. Then the second expression Paul uses is this, that we are grounded in love. He gives that picture of building. And a building must be on a a firm foundation of that building collapse. Think of that parable that Jesus told about the wise man who built his house on a rock and the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. We're meant to be grounded 
in love, our love for God, just as the queen loved the king, that she might realise the extent of his love. So we need to be rooted and grounded in love that we might know God's love in Jesus Christ. We need to love God to know his love. And Paul says that you now, having done all that, here now we're able to measure the greatness of God's love, that you might have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. You know, Charles Wesley puts it, What shall I do my God to love, my loving God to praise, the length and breadth and height to prove and depth of sovereign grace? We see Jesus there on the cross on Calvary's hill. The bottom of the cross points to all the earth. The top of the cross points to heaven itself. The width of the cross uh, represents the arms of Jesus Christ reaching out to a fallen world with all of his love. And Spurgeon calls it, this is heavenly geometry. Measuring how great is the love of God for us. And Paul says, first of all, you know, how, what is the width? How wide is, the, is God's love? Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could account from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. Oh, how wide is God's love as they go out to proclaim the love of Jesus Christ in this community. Christ died for all. His love is for all. There is no one excluded from his grace and love and power and might. That's the beauty of the gospel. Human philosophers appear or pretend to appear to certain types of people. Christ Jesus' love is for all. Charles Wesley says like this, Your sovereign grace to all extends, immense and unconfined. From age to age it never ends. It reaches all mankind. Throughout the world its breadth is known. Wide as infinity, so wide it never passed by one, or it had passed by me. Paul then says, We might know the width of God's love, but we might now know how long is God's love. If you see picture the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary, it's a wonderful, wonderful power of God's love, the supreme power of God's love. Go back a little earlier to you know Isaiah and the prophecy given that he be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquity, and by his stripes we are healed. Go back to Jeremiah, and in the midst of the collapse of the Jewish nation, hear God saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Go back even further to Genesis chapter 3. In the moment Adam and Eve fought a sin in the Garden of Eden, God says, 
I'm going to send the Redeemer. The seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. Go back even farther than that to the great council of eternity where before our world ever began, God knew, the Godhead knew that one day men and women would fall into darkness and disobedience so quickly. And as that conference of the Godhead before time began, they decided the only way was this, that the second person of the Holy Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, should die upon the cross for our sins. There was no other way. And that covenant of grace happened before the world ever began. Oh, how long is God's love? And when we look at the parable of the prodigal son, we see the father seeing the son from afar off. Not putting the son on the back door for fear of embarrassment when he returned, but running and embracing the son. Why? Because the father loved the son. Oh, how long indeed is God's love in Jesus Christ? Paul then tells us how deep is God's love in Jesus Christ. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7, He made himself nothing and took upon himself the form of a serpent. Of a servant. How deep is the love of God in Jesus Christ. Charles Wesley writes, the depth of all redeeming love, what angel tongue can tell, or may I to the utmost prove the gift unspeakable. How deep is God's love. It took the death of his only beloved son, to die for our sakes on Calvary's hill. That he emptied himself as a hypocrisy of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. The measure of God's loving was what it cost God. How deep is that love of God for us? But the final dimension, this fourth dimension that Paul mentions here is how high is the love of God? God. We are lifted up with Christ. Yes, it's wonderful to think in Jesus Christ we are saved. We are forgiven of our sins. We are redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. But God's love goes way, way beyond that. Note how 1 John begins his third chapter by these words. See what manner of love the Father has lavished on us that we can be called the children of God and that is what we are. The children of God and that is what we are. Paul writes in Romans 8.17 Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we also may share in his Glory. How high is the love of God? And you see, as we measure in our lives, in our walk with God, if we combat all the attacks of Satan by our knowledge 
of God's love in Jesus Christ. What is this result? And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Paul writes in Colossians, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Then he says, For in Christ, in chapter 2, verses 9 to 10, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority, filled with all the fullness of God and wanting day by day to be filled and filled again. And we have this wonderful grand doxology at the very end. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, as we reflect upon God's love, remember this, he is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. Remember, his power is always at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Unto him who is able to do. Praise God, we have got a God who is able to do. We have got a God who is able to do what we ask. We've got a God who is able to do what we imagine. We have a God, not only that, who is able to do more than we ask, more imagine. But more than that, he is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. John Newton puts it, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and truth are such, none can ever ask too much. Another hymn writer puts it, Great God of wonders, all thy ways display the attributes divine, but countless acts of pardoning grace beyond thine other wonders shine. Who is a pardoning God like thee? Or who has grace so rich and free? Oh, may we walk in our Christian way, in God's love, powered by God's love, never fail to be amazed at what that wonderful love of God is for us and for all the human race. May we pray together. Father, we just come to you now. We reflect upon your word. We praise you for the mighty word that you have given to us in the Bible. And Father, as we look at what our brother Paul wrote for us, for the Ephesians and for your people of every generation, Father, Build us up, we pray, in your most holy faith. By the power of your Holy Spirit, enable us to constantly beware a measure of how great your love in Jesus Christ is. And may that love 
May that amazing saving grace in Jesus power all that we do, all that we say, power us in all that we say to a fallen world outside and make us your obedient people, we pray, for our Lord Jesus Christ's sake. Amen.